you're an early stage Web3 founder, apply to our award-winning accelerator program, Basecamp at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We write your first $50,000 check and give you access to 200 mentors, including many of the leading Web3 founders, and a network of 1,000 of the world's leading investors and exchanges. We've helped over 30 startups from 15 countries from all around the world raise $130 million in growth funding and can help you fast-track product market fit and, where relevant, the launch of your token economy. I'm really happy to welcome Joe Lubin, co-founder of Ethereum, founder and CEO of Consensus. Welcome, Joe. Thanks, Jimmy. So I've been really looking forward to this one. We actually did try to get you on the podcast. Uh, technical problems, my end, uh, we failed. Aren't, aren't, aren't we now on the podcast? Well, also? technically, that's right, exactly. So we are both on the podcast and streaming live. Thanks for, thanks for correcting me on that one. Um, so let's get straight into it. So you're one of the few people that can say that they've built a multi-billion dollar network in this space that's actually being used at scale and growing. For those that don't know, I mean, it'd be amazing. You'd have to be under a rock to not know Joe. But in quick summary, um, Joe created, co-founded the Ethereum Network and Foundation with Vitalik Buterin. And the job of that foundation is to make sure infrastructure works fairly and independently um, and really set the precedent for how Web3 tokenized projects structure themselves. You almost simultaneously founded uh, Consensus, which at its core, and I'm sure this is a shifting definition, but last time I checked, Venture Production Studio and Blockchain Software Development Consultancy for Decentralized Applications, Enterprise Solutions, and Developer Tools. Is that still, is still how you say it? It has definitely evolved over the years. Uh, should I jump in and try to yeah. clean that up and make it current? So we started about five years ago, started uh, a year into the Ethereum project um, as we were moving on the Ethereum project to uh, launch version one of the Ethereum platform. Um, I started consensus to essentially um, figure out what it would mean to build a decentralized application, what it would mean to wrap a company around a decentralized application um, and effectively grow or open up an ecosystem. So we did start as a venture studio um, instead of believing that top down, we could uh, architect a, a new global digital economy uh, with these de decentralized applications. It made more sense to just bring a, a bunch of entrepreneurs and technologists into the mix uh, so that we could uh, uh, explore the solution space, essentially. And so consensus um, grew organically uh, with uh, the initial mission would have really been to just continue the vision and mission of the Ethereum project, foster adoption uh, for the technology. And uh, as a result, we ran lots of experiments. Um, we invested in lots of projects. We incubated lots of projects. Uh, so in a sense, we were a software company ourselves. We were a venture studio. Some of those projects spun out. Um, and we also started getting lots of calls early on uh, from different kinds of organizations that uh, asked us to explain uh, blockchain technology or, or explain Ethereum. Uh, and so um, we were this strange hybrid that was making investments and in managing our portfolio and and building software ourselves. Um, in the last 18 or so months, as uh, it became clear to everybody, or, or even before that, uh, that, uh, hey, um, we do have an ecosystem here. 
um, it, it has opened up. Uh, consensus played a, a significant part in that. And now so many organizations, including Big Four, you know, other major um, consulting companies, major banks, are streaming into our ecosystem. Uh, and now we needed to, uh, as we had done over a, a few times over the last few years, uh, re-architect ourselves, retool ourselves so that we could effectively compete in this uh, essentially new IT paradigm um, that was starting to, to really take hold. Uh, so some of the projects that we built uh, in that venture context um, have gained real traction and had started to coalesce into what we think of now as a blockchain stack. Uh, so these are um, our Ethereum client project, uh, which was called Pegasus. Uh, we now call it Quorum. It's uh, a um, blockchain node um, that runs on the public Ethereum network or private permissioned Ethereum networks. Uh, essentially, the, the foundational element comes in a, a Java flavor and a Go flavor. Um, on top of that, we have Infura that can handle 10 billion queries per day on, a, on an extremely busy day. It also has uh, uh, forthcoming a sort of private uh, component uh, enabling private connectivity to the mainnet or, or just private networks. Uh, on top of that, we have in our codifier commerce and decentralized finance group, we have middleware software and a bunch of component software for payments and digital asset issuance and full life cycle and uh, workflow and uh, compliance and a bunch of other things. And on top of that, we have both a consumer interface, uh, MetaMask, the wallet system and browser system on mobile, as well as a, a B2B aspect to that where uh, our MetaMask team is working with a bunch of product and other protocol teams to enable access to its uh, one and a quarter million users uh, for the for these different projects. And so all of that was housed in a company called Consensus AG, uh, a Swiss-based entity that uh, owns a bunch of operating companies around the world. And we recently uh, took the projects that uh, compose that stack and spun them out into a company called Consensus Software. Uh, so a, a very focused uh a coherent integrated software product company uh, and consensus ag um, which we're calling the mesh these days uh, is still managing uh, our portfolio so managing incubating some companies making new investments uh, but uh, the um, that stack which is now growing into uh, a much more fleshed out operating system is resident in a, a company called consensus software yeah, and I think it's really interesting, not only have you been innovating in technology, but you've been innovating in um, different commercial structures about how you work alongside this open open public network, and we'll get into some of those elements a, a little bit later. And as a founder, how you, how you manage the complexity of an evolving market and also being a first mover. Um, so some of the reasons why I really wanted to get this fireside chat is really your contribution to the space and your continued energy. I'm very envious. I don't know, I don't know what you're on, Joe, but it's definitely working. Um, so on the one hand, as this co-founder of Ethereum, you've introduced what promises to be a foundational layer to the internet at large. Um, I think you refer to it as a trust layer, but you've also birthed this new financial bottom-up um, system that's kind of native to the web and could very likely outlast either of us and probably will. Um, but it's also, if you look at 
Ethereum and ETH generally, probably one of the best investments anyone could have made over the same time period in any asset class. And I say that not from a kind of speculative perspective, but in that process, you've managed to make a whole ecosystem of devs and innovators financially independent. Um, and they've come back, reinvested billions of dollars back into R&D and, and completing this Web3 stack, which is both on top of Ethereum and also um, beyond or adjacent to. Um, you're prob- I'm very nervous about giving some stats now because I know you're going to correct me or they're going to be wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. So Ethereum um, still dominates its share of smart contracts, 79%. DApps, 82%. Daily active DApp users, more than twice the closest competitors. You referenced some of these kind of ventures or innovations that have come out of consensus before. MetaMask, 4 million plus downloads. $10 billion value transferred on chain, 130K um, BSU downloads with Hyperledger, 20K faster Ethereum infrastructure, 60 plus global clients and partners. Do you ever kind of just pause to reflect on all of that? It, I kind of get the feeling that you don't. You're just kind of on to the next thing, but I mean, that, yeah. that's kind of a huge com- contribution. Uh, I don't feel the need to pause and reflect all that much um and there's just so much to do on so many fronts so um i and we generally move forward uh because there's always cool stuff that is um exciting and better than what is in, in you know near in the rearview mirror uh so some of those stats sounded pretty good but uh they're, they're really quite small numbers uh, sure. i guess the relative numbers are, are okay uh compared to other protocols, but uh, uh, we are really uh, in the early days or the foothills of a uh, massive ascent in front of us. And so, uh, yeah, I, I hope we are uh, we remain uh, energized because uh, not only do we have a lot to build uh, as an ecosystem, um, but I think there's going to be uh, some interesting and different kinds of resistance that, that we'll encounter, especially as the the world transforms into a sort of new world order or new world disorder for a little while. Yeah. And I think we're going to, let's get straight into that mission piece. Um, So normally when I have people on the podcast, I I do my desk research and try to figure out their their background stuff that people might not know about, about somebody to contextualize them as a, as a founder. So I'm pretty sure I did know that you, you had this role at Goldman Sachs, I believe in their private wealth division, as VP of technology. What I didn't know was prior to that and prior to Ethereum, um, you actually started out as an academic researcher engineer in a very wide range of fields from machine vision, artificial neural networks, autonomous road vehicles, I believe at Princeton and then and then some commercial firms. Um, and I think we were on a panel recently and the conversation came up um, about AAs, autonomous economic agents. That wasn't what the panel was about, but it's what you and I ended up speaking for most of the time about so it'd be great to just talk about this this kind of unknown part of your career or background um at princeton and and beyond sure so i ended up doing a a junior paper and a thesis on ai uh it was uh kind of a boring kind of ai the the junior paper was a a survey of different uh, exciting techniques um from the perspective of 1986 so like a thousand years ago um, and, um, I was lucky enough to be hanging around the cognitive science laboratory 
uh, at Princeton where some cool connectionism work was being done. This was uh, one of the, the names for neural networks research uh, back then. And uh, so I ended up uh, working with an advisor and built a tool for teaching students Lisp programming. So that was AI from his perspective. Uh, but fortunately, um, there's a guy named Charlie Rosenberg who was hanging around who built this backpropagation-based project uh, that processed a bunch of text, and it was just it was just text, and it sort of understood how to take some jumbled text and turn it into words. It was uh, just a two-layer uh, backpropagation network. Uh, back then, we we had like simpler architectures. The architectures have evolved significantly since then. Um, but we had no data and no computational power. Uh, so the problems you could solve were, were really toy problems. What he did, though, was he hooked it up to this uh, speech synthesizer, which he tuned to sound like a, a young child. And so he had different time slices of learning of this network. And, and it sounded like the child was babbling and then starting to slightly form some words and then starting to string sounds together into words and then starting to string sentences together. And because of the synthesizer, it sounded just so incredible that this neural network was learning language. Of course, it wasn't. Uh, it was a, a trick. But that that basically, uh, um, that and, and just hang around and reading all the, the papers uh, in the Cognitive Science Lab, that, that's what uh, sort of captured my interest. And I, I spent the next 10 years uh, doing work in robotics, machine vision, uh, different kinds of neural networks. Uh, so it was, this is back at, in a time when you pretty much had to write your own backpropagation code, or uh, there was a group at uh, Boston University at the Central Center for Adaptive Systems. Uh, so I thought that they did some brilliant work. A guy named Steven Grossberg um, was the head of that effort. And so I, I built a lot of simulations. We built uh, an autonomous road vehicle simulation and, and taught a car to drive through that environment. Um, and I moved on to a company called Vision Applications where we actually built uh, a little uh, model uh, four-wheeled robot and and had uh, DSP cards and a vision system and so I sort of built the uh, the nervous system and a bunch of the visual object processing and navigation yeah. very cool and um, we'll, we'll kind of circle back to this a little bit later um, with, with the concept of AI Lego and, and how that might combine with money Lego but um, if we kind of come back to this this mission because um, as you alluded to earlier the idea that this is We've only just started. I think a lot of new people entering the space kind of feel that they're they're really far behind, that they've kind of missed out on everything. And um, I think we'll be probably comforted to hear by somebody like you saying it's really not not got started yet. We've got yeah, it's a huge way to go. So I've heard you describe this in different ways. And again, that's just as a byproduct of evolving with the market and evolve thinking. I do the same. The one that seems to be consistent throughout is this idea of a trust revolution. Could you explain the trust revolution in, and in the context of this mission, the thing that motivates you? Sure. So the, the context uh, in which we all find ourselves embedded right now is uh, one of a breakdown uh, in trust structures on the planet. Uh, I think that breakdown has perhaps been happening for a small number of decades or forever we as a society have done such spectacular things. And in order to uh, 
organize ourselves to do spectacular things. You need uh, essentially command and control systems or governance systems or decision-making systems or consensus formation systems. Um, and for all the periods of history where communication uh, was slow and expensive, it made decision-making slow and expensive. And so we needed paradigms uh, that were efficient. And so the paradigm that is most efficient uh, in that situation is top-down command and control. And we see that uh, throughout society and the military and government and companies, et cetera. Um, but uh, if you do have the ability to communicate instantly and inexpensively and make decisions amongst groups virtually instantaneously, uh, as we can do uh, in some of these decentralized protocols now, then you maybe have a, an experimental ground uh, for trying out new systems, new, new paradigms of organization. And um, I think it's fair to say that uh, the systems that we operate under in our society have done just enabled spectacular things across the world, but they uh, are also easily exploited by um, lazy people or corrupt people or uh, patient, uh, well-resourced actors. Um, and so as as a species, as a society, it would be really nice if we iterated and got to the point where we had governance and decision-making systems that uh, represented more people or more actors uh, in, in the context uh, more fairly. Uh, and so I'm excited about the fact that uh, Ethereum and many other protocols uh, represent uh, um, this new paradigm and we're in the early days of exploring uh, how to build uh, an architecture for the planet, the systems architecture for the planet. So um, at the foundational layer, we have decentralized protocols and the more decentralized it is across more identified dimensions, the more difficult it will be to improperly manipulate data on the system or to corrupt the system or co-opt the system. Um, and so two projects currently, um, Bitcoin and Ethereum, are uh, considered sufficiently decentralized by the SEC to have their tokens not be considered securities, uh, but also uh, sort of set the standard for what a layer one system should be, a, a foundational system. And uh, this is enabling us to move from a world of, of subjective trust, sub subjective decision-making, centralized decision-making, to a world of automated and objective trust. And so that foundation layer is hopefully um, going to grow in capability, uh, use Ability, scalability, uh, privacy, confidentiality. Uh, we've been working on that for years and have made tremendous progress. Still lots of progress to go. Um, and that trust layer um, is enabling right now a new financial plumbing uh, for the planet. So it is uh, democratized in the sense that anybody can get in there and use it permissionlessly. Anybody can get in there and build something new. Um, and like magic internet money, Lego protocols, snap it on to uh, something that somebody else has built or, or snap them into uh, exciting assemblies. Anybody can get in and fork uh, somebody's code uh, and uh, improve it or, or do something other than improving it, uh, as we've seen. Um, and, and so it, it's about uh, building a new, more trustworthy 
IT architecture for the planet, and that's the Trust Foundation, which enables the financial layer, uh, calling it the open decentralized finance uh, of late. And on top of that, we're going to have other layers uh, with other functionality that uh, the financial plumbing layer enables. Uh, I would argue that um, if we can build that financial layer um, broad and deep and um, the, the agility, the, the speed of innovation uh, in that space is just astonishing. It's so exciting what's going on there. Uh, but if that, that thing grows strong, um, then just like the United States, um, where I would argue that uh, it is the most the largest, strongest, most vibrant, um, most agile economy. I would argue that it is that uh, because it's sitting on top of the the broadest and deepest financial system by far uh, on the planet. And so uh, if we can build out, and it's largely getting built on Ethereum, other, other protocols are doing some things around the edges or connecting into Ethereum to avail themselves of, of the DeFi protocols. Uh, once that matures, um, then it will serve as a massive magnet on which you know, other aspects of the economy uh, will uh, be built. I've heard you describe kind of one of the outcomes of the goals, uh, outcomes or goals of this as um, granular governance or kind of improved localness in, in, in the effectiveness of governance. Um, and recently I saw you did a tweet, uh, I think it was at the beginning of COVID, which was effectively saying, uh, to quote, as builders of decentralized systems had hoped we'd have more time before the world hit another crisis of the scale, but as a legacy economy has entered the zombie-like days, we can accelerate a brave new world. So do you also kind of find part of the motivation on the one hand, you know, you're from the existing financial system, you work with it through consensus, um, but do you find what you're doing almost as a form of protest as well and software as a protest? Uh, so I definitely don't think of it as a form of protest, um, creative expression, perhaps, um, and mostly technological innovation. So the internet protocols developed and on top of those uh, web protocols developed, um, uh, web one protocols, web two protocols. So it's, uh, it's a lot of people standing on the shoulders of giants uh, uh, building something with more functionality or building something better. Um, Web3 protocols, uh, decentralized uh, protocols for trusted transactions and automated agreements uh, like on Ethereum, um, payments, decentralized or distributed storage, decentralized identity, decentralized heavy computation, uh, decentralized bandwidth, uh, all of those things will be incorporated uh, as part of the World Wide Web, uh, enabling us to build a, an increasingly decentralized World Wide Web. Uh, so that that's just evolution to me. Uh, certainly, there was an element of, of protest uh, in the Satoshi white paper, and I, I guess uh, advancement uh, is a dialectic. So you get somewhere, and you realize, hey, it's not the perfect, the ultimate system, and and you um, figure out ways to either fix it iteratively or try something new, uh, explore the solution space over in this corner and, and see that, you know, maybe, you know, getting back to AI terminology, maybe you've, you've found a, a local min here uh, in the energy surface, but uh, over here you you do some experimentation and, there, and there's lots, uh, lots more to explore and you can build much better systems. People complain a lot uh, in our ecosystem that, uh, you know, it's insufficient uh, to subserve all the world's use cases 
at scale uh, in September of, of 2020. Um, but again, it, it just has to be iterative. We need to um, try things and understand um, where they're working and where they're insufficient, uh, where they're insufficient in, in terms of scaling or usability. Um, that's where we know we can apply our effort. And so uh, it's going to take a bunch of time to build sufficient infrastructure so that we can onboard more and more uh, use cases. So we start with the lower hanging fruit, like cryptocurrency payments, and we gradually get more and more capable until uh, really smart people build cool stuff on uh, different layers that have been built up that enables what they do. So as a first mover, and this is a nice segue into course the much anticipated ethereum 2.0 as a as a first mover how do you what are the benefits and what are the downsides of that you know bringing new technology to market evolving uh, a network so we were not first movers we were early movers um there were lots of movers uh, over the last 10 years uh, i i do think that um over the last five or six years things really got started as smart contracts became a thing even before Ethereum, there there was uh, Nick Sabo's version of smart contracts, and there were some platforms that had sort of hardwired smart contracts, but not a virtual machine. So NXT enabled people to just change the whole platform and add some new functionality, and you could call that a smart contract. But I really feel like smart contracts uh, uh, roughly um, came to prominence uh, with Ethereum, and so we're five or six years in. Ethereum's early advantage uh, is apparent in so many ways. Um, one is a regulatory advantage in that uh, Ethereum and Bitcoin arrived on the scene before regulators were watching, and so via different mechanisms, we were able to distribute our tokens broadly and equitably, uh, which is a uh, critically important uh, for the success of decentralized protocols like this. If you're a great team right now with a great technology um, you need and, and you have uh, designs on being a layer one uh, protocol, you really need massive decentralization to, to claim that you're a layer one protocol, to claim that you're a, a new trust foundation. Otherwise, you're, you're kind of a, a pretty small platform um, and potentially corruptible. And so we were fortunate enough to be able to uh, frame our token as a utility token and uh, get the excitement of the community of developers, uh, entrepreneurs, users. A project right now, even if it's excellent, needs to incentivize its community uh, to be excited about the token. And, and usually the way to do that is to say, hey, this token is going to appreciate by the agency of this group over here. Uh, by definition, that's a security. This is Matteo Leibowitz's uh, distribution quadrilemma. Uh, it's not uh, my uh, uh, my construct. Uh, and so regulators are watching. So uh, pretty much all the tokens um, need to be either introduced into the world in a convoluted fashion um, or are, are really just going to be seen as securities so that uh, they can't be distributed broadly and equitably they are uh being called vc coins oh, sorry sorry jamie or uh <laughs> or, or or professor coins and uh, or, or worse uh, names than that as well yeah or worse names than that and, and we've seen we've seen that some good projects really good teams um 
have struggled to um, really establish themselves as sizable projects. So the uh, you know the new projects are, are really quite small still compared to Ethereum and Bitcoin and uh, the, the Ethereum ecosystem developer core is just so much bigger and so much faster moving and is drawing so much talent, uh, especially DeFi. DeFi is a massive moat uh, that Ethereum has. Now, so you build this thing that looks like it's a, a trust foundation. It, it's not sufficiently big or sufficiently decentralized to, to really put all the world's wealth on it right now, but it's, it's growing uh, to make that potentially possible at some point in the future. Once you have something that looks attractive like that, then you, you attract the people that, think, hey, we can build a new financial infrastructure on, on top of that foundation. And so um, the liquidity uh, in terms of um, value um, that's on the platform, that draws in more liquidity. It draws in the best and the brightest. So we've got the best and the brightest building out to, at the protocol layer. And so um, that early mover advantage for Ethereum is, uh, is just a an astonishingly large advantage. For consensus, we have an early mover advantage also in that uh, uh, we built some of the foundational components uh, in our ecosystem. Uh, so whether it's uh, an Ethereum client uh, uh, called Quorum or whether it's uh, Infura infrastructure that, that powers uh, uh, many billions of transactions um, and and other things that, other than transactions like reads that an application needs to do. Um, whether it's our codify tooling, middleware, and a bunch of different uh, components, or, or MetaMask that currently has uh, about one and a quarter million users uh, in both the uh, web version and the mobile version. Those projects, especially having coalesced into a blockchain stack and evolving into a blockchain operating system, uh, have set us up as a platform effectively or, or a set of platforms um, and being a platform in the space gives us uh, the advantage uh, essentially of an infrastructure provider and so we can relatively agilely um, observe what's going on in the space like the DeFi space and uh, and put out a service so Infura does that uh, regularly um, they're uh, going live with uh, a bunch of things soon, uh, some things around gas, some things around decentralized storage or distributed storage. MetaMask is going live very soon uh, with a pretty exciting service um, in the DeFi space. And, and we'll follow that with a handful of other exciting services. So with these two, you mentioned DeFi and there's kind of this love-hate relationship or dynamic between DeFi and Ethereum and Ethereum and DeFi because it's just so dominant. Can you explain that? A love-hate relationship between DeFi that's built on Ethereum? Yeah. And, well, so what's and Ethereum? Yes. Yeah, so what's interesting is is that if you speak to people uh, in DeFi, you know, there are of course frustrations um, that it's not truly democratized um, because of gas prices. Uh, on on the other hand, you have people that aren't interested in the so, experimentation so that's happening the, in DeFi the, and are frustrated that right. it's kind of clogging the network. Sure. So that, that's like saying that I have a love-hate relationship with my modem uh, in 1989. Um, Which is true. 
<laughs> Which was true. Yeah. <laughs> Very good point. But uh, I love my modem because it enabled uh, a whole new world um, that I could explore and experiment and build in. Um, and I, I think we need to understand that um, uh, technologists are always bumping up against uh, ceilings. Uh, so for many decades uh, of the development of the information technology world, uh, hardware developers and software developers um, have built amazing new things, you know, um, doubled the speed and size uh, every very short period of time. Um, but the software developers um, and other hardware developers are, are always poised to max out um, the available memory or CPU or bandwidth or screen size or transactions per second. Uh, and so uh, we're going to see that. Uh, we're going to see all of these decentralized protocols be somewhat disappointing to people who choose to be disappointed by them for years or decades, just because we're going to want to onboard more and more complex use cases. Uh, you know, when we start trying to do AI related things or big data related things that uh, um, touch on blockchain systems, it, it's going to get even worse. Um, and so what we do need is to, to keep building, to keep bumping up against many different ceilings because um, those ceilings basically show us uh, how we fail or, or how we uh, get maxed out. It shows us exactly where we can uh, apply our attention and um, you know, grow the system or make the system more capable. And we're, we've seen that uh, dynamic evolve beautifully uh, in the Ethereum space and other, other blockchain spaces. Uh, we've had uh, a bunch of layer two solutions being developed and iterated, improved. Um, several of them are online right now. Uh, several more are coming online. Ethereum 2 itself uh, is effectively a, a new from scratch technology that respects Ethereum 1 and will soon onboard uh, Ethereum 1 into Ethereum 2, creating a pretty smooth evolution between the Ethereum 1 technology and, uh, and its upgrade, Ethereum 2. Uh, so, um, it it seems to be a, a natural dance, uh, uh, ideally towards continuous improvement. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what you're doing at Consensus, because of course, you know, DeFi is just one part of that. You, you well, I've at least heard you in the past refer to it generally as uh, financialization. Um, so I understand it's kind of as a as more of a spectrum anywhere between CFI and, and DeFi. Could you talk about um, some of the areas where you're seeing the most innovation happen and perhaps elaborate on that spectrum of everything from uh, CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, all the way through to the more exotic end of DeFi. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I use the term financialization pretty narrowly. Um, so if you um, have a certain decentralized protocol, um, then you could run it and it would work fine in a in a certain context where everybody's trusted. But if you want to bring it into a bigger context where a Byzantine context where um, there are actors that aren't trusted or that you don't know, uh, then you have to create mechanisms like consensus mechanisms 
uh, uh, that uh, facilitate trust uh, in in that context. Uh, financialization to me uh, refers to uh, creating tokens of value that uh, can be used uh, for incentivization mechanisms to enable mechanism design. So you're rewarding people for sharing their resources or behaving uh, in certain ways on, on different kinds of protocols. Uh, consensus has a lot going on. Uh, so we've got a bunch going on in DeFi, decentralized finance. Um, we've got a lot going on on uh, enterprise usages of the Ethereum technology. Um, and we're seeing convergence uh, increasingly. Uh, we started with this notion uh, of convergence. We called it our, our convergence thesis or, or convergence hypothesis. Uh, and that's really why we started early on um, building tools for the public permissionless mainnet, uh, Ethereum mainnet, uh, but also uh, whenever we could, applying those tools, the Ethereum client, uh, um, decentralized applications, wallets, et cetera, into contexts uh, that were private and permissioned because we felt that um, just like the internet and web technologies, um, all these protocols, these technologies need to mature uh, in terms of usability and scalability and privacy and confidentiality um, to enable uh, more companies back in, in the web, web one era a Web2 era to make use of those technologies. Companies in in the 80s um, were much more comfortable, or sorry, in uh, in the 90s were much more comfortable on intranets. Uh, and that's for companies right now, for more legacy economy companies, that's where they are. They're building private permission systems and we've built a bunch uh, with companies or, or with consortia. Um, what we're seeing now is with DeFi, with uh, other kinds of applications, uh, with a protocol called Baseline uh, that we built uh, in collaboration with Ernst & Young, um, we're seeing mechanisms that will enable uh, legacy organizations to get comfortable uh, putting some sort of functionality or some sorts of use cases on public mainnet Ethereum. Uh, and so um, with Baseline, companies can... Uh, keep their information perfectly secure on their side of the firewall and through zero knowledge proof techniques, they can sync up agreements, uh, keep them in sync in real time or sync up business processes. Um, they can tokenize elements of business processes. So tokenize the money that's used in payments, tokenize the commodities that are, that are traded, tokenize the invoices uh, that uh, uh, represent some aspect of that business process. Um, fractionalize the invoices, securitize things. And, and so we're going to see a very exciting convergence between the, uh, sort of the legacy world and uh, the purer uh, public permissionless world. I, I think of it as uh, revolutionaries getting out ahead and showing what's possible. Um, and then evolutionaries uh, following relatively closely and, and uh, sort of fitting uh, those new capabilities into uh, what they need and you know, ideally coming up with new ways of uh, of doing business or interacting. 
So there's another form of convergence um, which we share, which is this idea of convergence of blockchain and AI. I know you guys um, were big contributors to the EU Blockchain Forum, and you published a paper on the convergence of the blockchain and AI. And to circle back to um, the topic that I asked you at the beginning, your, your kind of background in the AI space. So do you think that DeFi or Money Lego needs AI Lego? And, and how, how will that play out? Um, so I think there's a really rich uh, potential intersection uh, between the two domains. AI, as I said earlier, AI requires a, a tremendous amount of data. Um, and it has, uh, to the concern of some, turned into what could be considered an arms race. Um, so if you have uh, access to enormous amounts of data and enormous amounts of computation, you can... Um, do a pretty astonishing things. Uh, Either as a state or a platform, right? Yeah. So whether it's uh, uh, the NSA in the United States or or China government or Facebook or Google or or potentially some other projects, uh, they they have uh, enormous advantages. We we saw recently with the uh, uh, GPT three. Um, the kind of magic that uh, that could occur, and and what appears to be the kind of uh, conceptual learning, sort of generalization mechanisms that can be built strictly from data, strictly from internet-based or internet-acquired data, and so um, it would be wonderful uh, if this arms race, which is not going to and or stop in any way. Uh, there's no way to stop uh, that sort of innovation. Uh, but it would be wonderful if it, if it was uh, a broader, fairer, flatter uh, playing field. Uh, and I think we can do that. I, I think we can get to the point where uh, people understand that their data is valuable and you can incentivize people to uh, protect better uh, their financial information, their medical information, uh, or just you know the signals that are streaming off their lives, off their bodies all day long. Uh, these things uh, can be collected, can be formed into different feeds, uh, can be stored in uh, large corpuses. Projects like IPFS and Filecoin are configured right now to um, facilitate the handling, the storage and handling and usage of massive data sets. Uh, and if we can turn that data into um, commodities uh, that can be traded fluidly for value for lots of people, it enables people to either go out and take pictures or, or collect other information um, and, and monetize it. And the way to uh, facilitate that is to build data markets. Um, if we have data markets and if people understand that certain kinds of data um, are very valuable uh, as opposed perhaps to these more superficial stuff that Facebook uh, might easily collect, um, if, uh, if we have mechanisms like self-sovereign identity and, and personal data lockers such that we can interact with applications without giving up too much personal information um, and we can use our personal information uh, and we can de-identify it and share it with a research study or um, get commercial benefit uh, from it by sharing it with somebody who's willing to 
pay us um, for it to, to use in their classifier or or to have us interact uh, with something so that they can add metadata and, and improve the data. Um, these sorts of uh, mechanisms can enable us to create a platform uh, that could facilitate very broad competition uh, in the AI space. So uh, if we can make these oceans of data uh, broadly accessible and help people understand that uh, uh, that's where your data should go and that you should have uh, full granular control uh, over how it's used, how, how you um, allocate uh, access to it, uh, I think we will have a much healthier evolving context for AI. Uh, and you pretty much need blockchain for that. You need to um, to tokenize and have fair systems and you need things like self-sovereign identity, which uh, massively benefits from, from blockchain. Joe, that was almost the perfect segue into the next panel, which is basically about uh, features a one project called Swash App, which is the world's first data union, um, flex browsing data um, from Brave and stuff like that. So, Joe, it's um, been a real pleasure to, to finally get that one-on-one -on -one with you. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much, Joe. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.